before we get to the scripture reading, I'd like for you to imagine just for a moment uh, somebody's coming over to your house for supper. Um, I'll speak in the first person because that's a little easier. So uh, let's, let's think for a second. If, if someone's coming over to our, to our house, or maybe you think of times when people come over to your house, how do you get ready? You clean, right. That's the first thing. Yeah. Every, everyone uh, who has little children who's answered that question this morning has said that first. So, yeah. Yeah, clean. You pick up the toys. You vacuum. You, you know, stuff things in the closet that just get piled up in there, but at least you can close the door. You clean up, waiting for your friends to arrive. And then, and then when they come over, um, you go to the door. And you greet them, and you shake their hand, or you give them a hug. You welcome them inside. You might even offer them something to drink. You practice a bit of hospitality. And then eventually, if they're, if they're coming over for supper, eventually you will make your way to the table where the food that you've prepared is laid out, and you eat together. Now, if you're inviting someone over for the first time, you might be a little nervous about how that's going to go. You're, you really want everything to go just right and to be a good host. But by the 10th time someone's come over to your house to eat, well, you're just excited to see them. The depth of your relationship has grown to the point that you're now more comfortable in one another's presence. You have more of a history with this person. And so your relationship has developed over time. That's fairly straightforward, right? I mean, it's easy to get, easy to see how that plays out. Um, We have been for the last few weeks, engaged in this series of sermons that are now ongoing, uh, thinking about how to learn to see more fully the light of Christ in the world around us. Christ's presence in the people we meet, in the places we go, in the natural world, in the course of our lives. To learn to see with eyes that look a little bit more like Peter and James and John atop the Mount of Transfiguration who come back down the mountain and see everything else differently. And in order to do that, we've been looking at holy places. Remember we talked about in Exodus, God's instructions for how the tabernacle was to be laid out and designed. We talked about holy things, those those objects that go within the tabernacle, whether it's the altar or the lampstand that's symbolic of the tree of life and so on. Uh, Holy objects... Help us to learn to see more fully. And then last week, Wally spoke a bit about holy people looking uh, in the Exodus passage at the priests as they were uh, robed and as they wore particular garments, setting them aside for particular tasks in the tabernacle. Um, So we're learning to see. We're trying to see better. I've been encouraging you to go to a holy place in your house, right? Maybe have a favorite Bible where I have my prayer rope, an object or something that might help you um, focus more intently upon God in that place and space. And of course, people. There are people in this room who have helped me grow in my faith, and I'm sure that is true for you. Uh, So all in all, we're trying to learn to see better. This morning, we're going to continue with Exodus, but I want us to shift a little bit away from holy places, things, and people to think about ritual. We're going to be talking about ritual for the next few weeks. And I give you all that as a preface because our our passage this morning has to do with God's direction for the people to engage in a particular ritual. 
In this instance, it's for the ordination of Aaron and his sons, the priesthood. But what we see is sacrifice being made. Old Testament, if you have any knowledge of the Old Testament, there are a lot of sacrifices that are offered, right? If you're like me, that might be a little strange to you. Not only because we don't practice sacrifice, per se, as we imagine it, uh, but also because, I mean, I remember as a child hearing my grandmother talk about taking chickens in their yard and tying their feet to the clothes hanger, and it was her job as a young girl, they didn't go to the grocery store, it was her job as a young girl to kill those chickens, pluck them, and prepare them for food. Who does that presently? Does anybody do that? Okay, okay there we go. So we're, we have a distance and a separation. And so when we hear sacrifice, if you're like me, I think killing, death, and blood. That is not what anyone in the ancient world thought about sacrifice. It is not what the Israelites understood sacrifice to be. Killing was almost incidental. What we see at play is God preparing the tabernacle, a particular place, and he gives orders for how that should, take, should happen. And then the priests are the ones who take animals, but not just animals, and then boil them, prepare them. It's food. And they give the animals, uh, whether it's a lamb or whatever, uh, and they prepare them with grain, with bread, with oil, with wine, or other things to drink. It's a meal. This sacrifice is not just killing stuff and throwing blood around. That's not what it's about. They're preparing a meal. Why? Because it is how they are going to offer hospitality to God, who promises that when they do this, He will come and be in their midst so that they can feast, so that they can come to the table, so that they can share a meal with God and with one another. That's what it's about. So I didn't want you to get confused about any of that. It's a pretty elaborate ritual with particular rules, but, but could you imagine if someone came over to your house who was like, I don't know, the president, right? Would you be a little more careful about how you tried to get everything organized in the space and in the holy place just right? Would you be a little more intent about offering hospitality in an appropriate way? Would you be a little more focused on um, enjoying that time together in a meal to, to share communion with this person who you see as um, being important? Now imagine that it's God. That's why there's so many rules. That's why the rituals are laid out. That's why they want to get it just right. Because they're welcoming God, they're showing God hospitality as He's indicated that He desires them to show it. And He promises at the end of this passage that He will be with them. We're talking about ritual. This ritual in particular is really just the same as you inviting someone to your house and sharing a meal. But in this instance, it's God's house. And he's assigned particular servants to prepare the way so that we can come into his presence to enjoy fellowship and feasting. 
which really is what's happening this morning too, right? We're going to the table. So listen carefully, listen well. We're going to read a few selections because I wanted to highlight those pieces. Uh, preparing the space and the people, the hospitality, and the promise of communion. Uh, so Exodus 29, verses 1 to 9, verses 31 to 34, verses 38 to 46. Now, this is what you shall do to the priests, to Aaron and his sons, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine, white, uh, fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird them with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And beginning with verses 31 now. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they're holy. And if any of the flesh of the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. And then skipping to verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a, a tenth sia of flour, a fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil and a quarter of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord." It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord your, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Could you see some of those elements? How carefully the priests prepared? How Did you see the ritual even of them robing? the particular garments they had to wear in the, in the pr appropriate order? Did you see how they offered the Lord not just sacrifices um, uh, of, of animals cooked as a meal, but also with flour, fine wheat flour, 
with uh, oil poured upon it. Oil is an important aspect of any meal, really, in the Middle East. Um, They had wine there, which also was burnt and offered up. And it wasn't just things were, were burnt. The priests were also eating of this. And in fact, the people would then eat in other ceremonies and in other ritual patterns. All the people would eat. They would offer up a part of their sacrifice to the Lord, and then the rest of it would be prepared, and there would be an enormous feast. This is why when you read about those passages of people coming to Jerusalem on holy feast days, and they tell you like 22,000 sheep were, were butchered, and you say, my goodness, that's just awful, right? No, no, they were eating them. It was a feast. It was a feast to the Lord, and everyone was having a party together honoring God. And so you see uh, these things, and, and then at the end, God's promise that he would be with them in those moments, that he would be present with them. Now, uh, I've been encouraging you guys to go to a holy place. You know, there's a ritualistic pattern that we see laid out here. There's a ritual, an order. That's all that means, really. I've been encouraging you to go daily to a holy place, a place where you can be with God, a place set apart. And in that going on a daily basis, day after day, like the morning and evening sacrifices that were offered up to the Lord, you are participating. That's actually a ritual already, right? I'm trying to encourage you to to engage in this pattern, in the shape of life. And so as you do that, you're going, you have holy objects, you're thinking of holy people, But today, I want to double down on the ritual part. And I want to show you, I want to teach you a new ritual. Something that you can do as you go to that place, as you pray the prayer, O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of goodness and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us from every stain, save our souls, our good one. As you engage in that practice, I have one more ritual that I'd like you to to explore. Um, In fact, it is the ritual that more Christians have performed uh, in the history of the church than any other one. It's not even close. Um, And I would be willing to bet almost, there might be a couple people, but I, I think almost everyone in this room probably does not do this and has never done this. Anybody have any guesses? Um, So it's the sign of the cross. Making the sign of the cross. Um, When I hear about the sign of the cross, if you're like me, you probably immediately think of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah? Um, Oh, that's something that Catholics do. Uh, In the 17th century, uh, the, the Anglican Church, that's the Church of England, Um, as they broke away, this is during that time of the Reformation period, uh, as it extends, uh, they took and developed a new book of common prayer. That book instructed people what rituals they were to participate in on a daily basis. They made some changes from the Roman Catholic practices, and uh, this book of common prayer has been handed down. It's used by... Anglicans today or Episcopalians today. Um, within that book, which also describes the liturgy or the ritual on Sundays, but also for daily prayer in a person's life, um, making the sign of the cross 
was changed from being a, a, a mandatory thing to being left to the believer's conscience. It was not described as bad. It was not unchristian. It was not sinful. It was just no longer required in the same way. It was just up for whatever people felt led to do. In the Presbyterian tradition, as that comes down uh, in, the, in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in, and in the gathering of folks at Westminster as they were uh, articulating some of these things from a Reformed perspective, they also made the sign of the cross optional, up to each person as they felt led. Again, it is not sinful. It is not bad. It is not wrong. It's just up to you. Now, you see what happened in that instance. What was up, left up to people to practice if they wanted to was just completely dropped over time. Has anybody regularly made the sign of the cross uh, as, as, a, as a Protestant, let's say, in their life? One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, six. So Holly from Episcopalian background, right? So there's that book of common prayer. In it, in red, it says, you can make the sign of the cross if you want to. Um, yeah, so I see, I see John, a few people who have, have uh, Catholic background. But largely, this is not practiced. More people have engaged in this ritual action on a daily basis than any other Christian thing. And I think we're actually missing out on a lot. Now, this is not to say you have to do this. Uh, I started learning about it 10 years ago. And I tried it, and it felt awkward. It felt strange. It felt like I was pretending to do something that didn't, wasn't really earnestly or honestly coming out of who I was. 10 years later, I cannot imagine not making the sign of the cross on a regular and daily basis. I, I probably will never not make the sign of the cross ever again. Um, so, that doesn't mean you have to just immediately say, oh, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. But I do want you to hear some of the meaning behind it. Uh, clearly enough, here's the sign of the cross. Make it like that, right? Uh, but I want you to, let's start, as we learn about this, I want you to start with your right hand. And you can do these things, it might be helpful. So I want you to take the, your, your first three fingers, your thumb, your pointer, and, and your middle finger, and put them together. Three fingers. Three is an interesting number for a Christian, isn't it? Yes. I wonder what that might symbolize. Anybody have any ideas? The Trinity. Right, so here is the Trinity. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit is symbolized in, your, in, the, in the bringing together of these three fingers on one hand, right? Now, you'll notice that my ring finger and my, uh, my pinky finger are pointed down side by side, touching and touching my palm. Two. Now, for a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, two also has an interesting meaning. Can anybody tell me that? As it relates to Jesus, the number two? Two thieves on the cross. Close. Not quite. Not quite. Not, not quite. God and man. That's it. Good, John. So this is the incarnation. Or, excuse me, this is the dual nature of Christ. 
we confess Jesus as being fully human, right? And also fully God. And also these fingers point down because Jesus, the one um, eternally with the Father, pre-incarnate, came down as fully God, fully man, and came to earth, right? So they point down. Here's the Trinity. And we know the Trinity how? Because the Trinity has revealed God's identity in the person of Jesus, and Jesus in his person is fully God and fully human. It's a mystery, but we confess that. Now I want you to do something. Have you got this shape? All right, turn it sideways. I just learned this. Uh, if you look through here, this, it creates sort of a, a, um, an opening there. This symbolizes the womb of Mary. Because when you look through it, what do you see? You see the, your two fingers. Christ, fully God and fully man. Yeah? So right here, at the, we haven't made a sign yet. We haven't done anything yet. You have the Trinity... You have the nature of Jesus, your confession that he is fully God and fully man, and so uniquely suited to join us to the life of God. And you have the, the incarnation here because Jesus has taken on our human nature through Mary. So you have a man, Jesus, a woman, Mary, the Trinity here. Like, a lot's going on and all you've done is make your hand in this shape. Yes? All of these things, when you make the sign of the cross, you are confessing. When you join your three fingers, you're confessing faith in the Trinity. When you hold your two fingers here, you're confessing Jesus is fully God, fully man, that he's become incarnate for our sakes. The sign of the cross is actually physical prayer. It's confessing something, even using your body. Um, if I were to say right now, <clears throat> okay, everyone, let's pray, what would you do? Bow your head, close your eyes. Right? Now, is that sinful? Is that wrong to do something with your body? No. Neither is it wrong to make the sign of the cross. When you bow your head, you are bowing to the Lord. You are surrend you're saying, Lord, you're higher than me. You're surrendering to his will. Um, when you make the sign of the cross, you're, you're just doing that with more detail. You make the sign of the cross, you can bow your head, and you say, I, the one I'm bowing to is the triune God revealed in the person of Jesus incarnate by the Virgin Mary. Now, uh, the, the next thing that you will do is you will place this upon your body in the sign of a cross, in the shape of a cross. Right? Now, that's also an important symbol in the Christian faith. It's all over the place. It's there. It's in the back probably in the covers of your Bibles and so on. Uh, if you look at the cross very clearly, and you're, you're placing not your body upon a cross, you're placing the cross upon your body. And the shape of the cross has meaning too. It, the cross is the place where Jesus unites God and humanity, heaven and earth. Uh, it's also the place that, that binds us together in a horizontal fashion, like person to person. The cross is what actually, you know, that... that Line, we're, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Right? We're on the same playing field. We're level at the foot of the cross. That's where we actually have communion. We can get upset with each other, but when we come together and, and kneel, maybe like this song was singing, uh, the choir was singing this morning, when we kneel, we're all in an equal playing field. And Christ is the place of our unity. The cross is the central axis 
that unites heaven and earth and humanity and the world together. So you're placing that upon your body. Jesus went there for us. And then he said this. Uh, Anyone who wants to follow after me should take up his cross and follow me. So when you make the sign of the cross on your body, when you bow your head and surrender to his will, you're saying, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. This is how I am taking up my cross and I'm following after you. You're physically doing that. It's meaningful. But there's more. Um, Of course, we can't just take up, we're not called to take up random crosses. We have enough crosses that find us on, on their own. But we're only able to do that because of what Christ has already done. He's turned the symbol of the cross from a symbol of death and torture into a symbol of victory and his triumph. So we're not, yes, there is a penitential aspect to making the sign of the cross. But it's also the sign of victory that Christ is victorious for you. And how do we see that playing out? Well, let's start here. Everybody put their, make the sign and you can put it on your forehead. And so this is heaven. Let's say this is heaven. Christ is, we're tracing out the life of Christ here. So Christ is pre-incarnate with the Father. He is the eternal Son of the Father. He is the Word through whom everything was made. These are basic confessions out of John's Gospel. And so uh, we confess that Jesus is is the pre-incarnate one with, with God the Father, that he comes from heaven, where? Down to earth. He comes down. That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Jesus comes down. And here we think of his life, which was, it's interesting, this is like where a womb would be, right? So he is incarnate in the earth by Mary. But he also lives out his life among us and walked the same streets that we walk. And, um, and he taught and he loved and he healed and he blessed and he fed and he transformed and he set free He showed us what it means to be human in his life on the earth. But of course, we, you know, as humanity rejected him, nailed him to a cross, and he died. He actually went down into the earth. He came from heaven as far down into the earth as you can go. He was dead and buried. And so just as Jesus came to earth in a virgin womb, you can also imagine this to be the virgin tomb. No one had ever laid in that tomb before Christ. Christ goes to the tomb. He dies. But that's not the end of the story, nor is it the end of the sign of the cross. He is raised again, and he ascends to the right hand. So come to your right shoulder, to the right hand of God the Father. Right? As the Lord of heaven and earth. That's why we worship him today. He's triumphed. He's victorious. He's been raised. So he starts in heaven, comes down to the earth, dies, is raised up, and ascended to the right hand. But that's neither the end of the story either. He's promised to come again. So in that simple action, the Trinity, the dual natures of Jesus, the incarnation, you have the pattern of Jesus, pre-incarnate, incarnate, cross, then resurrection, coming again. Uh, You have all of that laid out in front of you, um, even as you are surrendering yourself to a life of discipleship before him. And so one more thing. Uh, I know that's a lot. Good grief. Um, there's a lot there, isn't it? It looks real simple, but, you know, you do it like this, but there's a lot that's going on. So here's the last bit. What's the great commandment? 
Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets depend upon this. And so it's slightly out of order. But when you touch your forehead, you, you're saying, Lord, I want, to, I want to love you with my whole mind, with all my thoughts. And you can imagine this being your soul, it's sort of the middle of your body. Uh, there's the, the, maybe sort of your stomach is, is identified in many ways with sort of your emotions, but it, it's more, the soul encompasses more than that. But you can think with my mind, with my soul, kind of the center of my being, um, with all my strength, so you go to your right arm, and with all my heart. And so as you make this sign of the cross, you're confessing your desire to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. You know, it's kind of like your body's a temple or a tabernacle. And as you are preparing to meet, to pray, to engage with the Lord, you want to get things straightened out. You want to tidy up. You want to get things in their proper place. And so you remember the Trinity, the person of Jesus, the Incarnation, His journey to the earth, the cross, the resurrection, His coming again. You remember that you're called to love Him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're called to this cruciform life, which isn't sad and gloomy, but is victorious and full of joy. You're putting yourself in order when you do this, so that with your own life, you can offer hospitality to the Lord. You say, I want to receive you. I want you to be with me right here. I want to receive your blessing, and I want to commune with you. It's a ritual, just like these we read about. It's just that you're the tabernacle. And the presence of the Lord comes to you in the Spirit. All this made possible by Christ, who went to a cross for you. Uh, you know how I end all my sermons, right? Mm -hmm. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I usually say when I make the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and the Son who's come down, and of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us now and will come again and restore all things. You want to do that with me? While we say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Maybe when you go to your holy place, that can be something that over time transforms you. The first time might feel a little nervous and awkward, but think about the tenth time, or the thousandth time. God gave you a body for a reason. You can use them to His glory. Amen.